Bernard Langett knows uh, a lot about long-distance running. Um, Langett is a, a Kenyan-born citizen of the United States, and he's also a four-time Olympian. Um, he owns seven American records, uh, ranging from the 1,500-meter race to the 5,000-meter uh, race. In 2012, maybe you remember the name, I don't know, 2012, in the London Olympics, uh, he finished fourth in the 5,000-meter race. And although uh, long-distance running is hard on a person's joints and uh, muscles, 37-year-old Laggett knows uh, shows no sign of, of slowing down. But even in the midst of his rigorous training schedule, every fall, Laggett um, would do something that most long runners, elite runners around the globe would, would never do. He would take a uh, four-week uh, break every fall. Since 1999, he's taken that break. In fact, the New York Times uh, article writing about him said he will toss his sneakers into a closet and pig out for four weeks. No running, no sit-ups, no heavy lifting except for a fork. He will also coach his son's soccer team. Peter Thompson, a longtime running coach and track and field official, claims that Laggett's approach to running is really quite, um, quite unique. Thompson said this. He said, in the U.S., runners are very obsessive about not letting go, letting go of training. But Laggett stands by his need for his sustained rest. Laggett said that every athlete is different, but his schedule has been very effective for him. In fact, he said this, my runs are very hard. Everything I do is hard, but the body is tired. You're not a machine. Rest is a good thing. <laughs> These past four months, I got to tell you, I have learned, relearned Laggett's lesson. Rest is a good thing, friends. It's a good thing. And you as my church family, I am so thankful I am so thankful that you have ministered to me and you've ministered to my family um, in this way of giving us permission to take a rest, to get away and take a sabbatical. And so that's exactly what I did. I, <laughs> we, we took a rest. Um, you know, since I've been back, uh, you know, just started back again on past Wednesday, um, um, I've had a number of people um, just ask me, well, what do you do? Uh, what does a person do on a sabbatical? <laughs> um, you know, um, what do you do? Well, the best way, I think, for me to describe that to you this morning, I just want to give you a little bit of idea, is probably um, I took those four months and kind of divided into thirds. Um, and uh, uh, the first third of <laughs> my sabbatical, the first time frame, I, I just... I got to tell you, I just rested. Um, I mean, I actually took a Sabbath. <laughs> uh, I turned the switch off, you know, I left my calendar on the shelf. I uh, turned off my, my uh, church email. Um, I uh, got off Facebook. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, got off social media. I, I worked, I really focused on being rather than doing. 
during that first third. Um, I focused on my own spiritual and mental health. I read some books. I took some extended time just reading scripture and praying. And I got to tell you, I took a number of naps. <laughs> um, I Sabbathed. The second third, um, I traveled. Um, Becky and I, uh, we got in the car and we drove out west. We headed west. Um, we had a great time. We, we got away. We went to uh, Colorado, went up in the mountains of Colorado, and um, um, we had some time there visiting with family there in Colorado and friends. And when we, we spent some time, um, we drove out to Yellowstone National Park and the Grand it, no, not the Grand Tetons, the, the Tetons, with the Grand Teton. Uh, and we were there, um, and my, uh, my daughter Hope and her husband Sawyer, they joined us there, and we had a great time just spending time there in the beauty of God's nature. Um, then later in the summer, uh, after uh, we got back, and we had an opportunity with my son, who just graduated from Wheaton College, uh, to uh, uh, go down to Florida for a little bit, um, we took some time, and, and we traveled, and it was refreshing. The final third, I got to tell you, is um, uh, I prepared. Um, um, I, I started getting ready to return. <laughs> um, I, I took a whole week out and uh, just studied and, and laid out um, sermons uh, for the next year um, that we're going to be going through. I did a lot of reading. I listened to some different podcasts. Um, I tried listening to what God would have for us here at First Free this next year. Um, I, I took some time and I, I, I prepared. Um, of course, I got to tell you, those, breaking that four months into that quick overview, it doesn't quite capture everything. Um, um, but I got to tell you, one thing that I was doing during those four months away, the one thing that was consistent all the way through was I was praying. I was specifically praying for you. I was praying for my church family. What have I been praying? <laughs> I've been praying, I got to tell you, one of the Apostle Paul's prayers. I, I felt like that was the place to go. Yeah, I mean, if you read the book of Acts, you read any of uh, Paul's letters, you discover quickly that he was a man of prayer, right? Um, I mean, he seemed to be praying all the, all the time. Um, he, he was praying for those people in the churches that he had planted. Um, what did he pray for? Well, to answer that question, you have to go right to each of those letters that he wrote, and you could discover and read his prayers for them. But one of the prayers stood out to me, and it's a prayer I think that he prayed not just for this one church, but prayed for all believers everywhere. And it's a prayer I... I took and I began to make it my own and I looked at it and I prayed it and I prayed it and I prayed it. I think it captures Paul's prayer for all believers. I think it captures my prayer for you. It's out of Ephesians chapter three. So I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter three because I want to share with you what I have been praying, what I will be praying, continue to be praying for, for you. Ephesians chapter three, start with me at verse 14. Book of Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Powerful prayer. It's a stacked prayer. It's, it's rich and, and, and full. Um, but you know, right off the start, as you read that prayer, as you look at that prayer, as you study that prayer, you discover that there's some, some problems, there's some questions. I mean, think about this. This prayer is for believers, right? Yet Paul prays some things that, as Christians, we already have. In verse 17, uh, Paul says, um, he prays that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. Um, yeah, back in chapter 2, verse 22, um, he tells us that uh, we are already uh, the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. <laughs> through the Holy Spirit, every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ has Christ's indwelling spirit in us. So my question is this, why would he pray for what we already have? In verses 18 and 19, Paul prays that um, believers might grasp and they might know the love of Christ. But listen, don't all Christians already know the love of Christ? I mean, 1 John chapters 3 and 4 certainly tell us they do. I mean, if you don't believe in the sacrificial love of Christ, how can you be a Christian? <laughs> so why is Paul praying that these Christians get what they already have? The answer, I suggest, is that Paul understands it's one thing to possess something, but it's another to actually use it. It's one thing to have something. It's another to let what you have affect the way that you, you live and what you do. For example, um, think about this. It would be possible, don't you think, um, to inherit a huge sum of money. Um, and for you, you know, you, you get this huge sum of money and you put it in a bank account, a checking account, and you know that it's there for you to use. Yet on a specific night, you leave your home and you go out and you uh, forget your credit cards. Uh, you um, can't remember your ATM uh, password. And so then you find yourself out in the cold, uh, hungry, uh, not able to access that money. But yet it's yours. It's legally yours, but experientially and practically it is not, right? Although you possess it, at that moment, it isn't affecting the way that you live. That, I think, is what's happening here. <laughs> Paul is praying this prayer. Paul is praying fervently that these believers might get what they already have because it's not 
affecting their lives. And I gotta tell you, there's two um, implications I draw from that. Uh, first implication is simply this. That can very easily be our situation. In fact, my guess is, for most of us, although we know Christ loves us, it has not completely affected us the way it should. We're not shaped by what is already ours. We might know Christ dwells in us intellectually, but experientially or practically, um, we don't know it. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, an English pastor, when he was counseling troubled Christians, um, Christians who were struggling or Christians who were insecure or anxious, he would suddenly surprise them with the simple question, tell me, are you really a Christian? Most of the time they respond, well, I'm trying. (laughs) Dr. Lloyd-Jones would say then, well, that's your problem. You don't understand what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who is not saved by their own works. Um, They're not saved by relying on their own uh, performance before God or before others or even before their own selves. A Christian is someone who is saved because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Therefore, being a Christian is a standing. It's a status first. Either you have it or you don't. And then if the person said, oh, oh yeah, I, I knew that, Lloyd-Jones would say, what that reveals then is not that the person is not a Christian, but that the love of Christ is not spiritually operative. The love of Christ is not in their inner being, and it is not affecting how they live. The unbelievable implications of being absolutely, think about this, absolutely loved by the Father because of the death of the Son for them is not shaping their emotions or will. And I want to suggest to you that that can be normal for us believers. That situation can be a situation we're all experiencing or living in. We're not being shaped by what is already ours. And that is what Paul, uh, why Paul can pray this prayer for these believers. And the second implication is simply this, that this is a great need. Do you notice how Paul introduces his prayer? Do you see this? He says, he bowed my knees before the Father. I bow my knees before the Father. The ordinary posture, understand this, the ordinary posture among the Jews of that day was to stand. So in Jesus' parable, remember that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Both men were standing to pray. In Mark 11, Jesus says, when you stand praying, (laughs) standing was normal. Kneeling, that was unusual. When a person did bow their knee, it meant that um, there's an exceptional degree of earnestness in their their prayer. Like when Ezra confessed Israel's sin or when Jesus fell on his knees in that garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? So uh, So Paul says, I'm bowing my knees because this prayer for you as believers, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. 
You have to understand, people in Paul's day, they faced all kinds of uh, dangers, didn't they? From illnesses to persecution. I mean, just getting a meal for the day was a, was a chore, it was a challenge. It's a challenge for them to, to make a living. Life was anything but easy there for those first century Christians. Yet not once, do you see this? Not once in this prayer does Paul mention any of these needs. <laughs> see, you and I, so many times we focus on just the physical needs or the financial needs. We think those are the big deal. Maybe we, we have an issue going on in our marriage or we have issue with our, our, our children, struggle with them, and we think, oh, we've got to pray for this. Yes, you need to pray for it, but that's not your greatest need. Paul says those things are needs, but those aren't the greatest needs you have. You say, so what's the greatest need they have? Well, what does Paul pray for? Paul prays for us in this prayer here that Christ would be formed in us. Christ formed in us. He wants each of us to reach full maturity in Christ. And I gotta say, that's a big deal. (laughs) That's a big prayer. And that's been my prayer for each one of you this summer. And it'll continue to be my prayer for you. That Christ might be fully formed in you. Listen, that's in our mission statement, right? Helping individuals become Christ-centered and Christ-sent together. Christ, in other words, being formed in us so that when we go out in the world, when we go into our circle of influence, we go back to our work or school, that we would be an ambassador representing Christ and how we act and how we, what we say and what we talk about and think about. Paul's prayer is a Big prayer is that Christ would be formed in us. Now, I want you to see this because he develops this prayer through three petitions. Three petitions. John Stott calls it a prayer staircase where each of these prayer requests, it takes a step, climb higher and higher and higher until he can go no further. <laughs> He's at the ultimate. Three key words make up this prayer staircase. I want you to show, show you this. There's strength, Love and fullness. Strength, love, and fullness. The first step in this prayer staircase is that each of us might be strengthened with power in our inner being. You understand, look, in fact, back with me up at verse 13. Chapter 3, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory, Paul says. So right before he goes into this prayer, Paul is referring to suffering that he is experiencing for these believers, and he doesn't want them to be discouraged, uh, be discouraged because of it. And more than likely, i got to tell you, these believers here in this church in Ephesus are also experiencing difficulties and trials. So Paul begins to pray that they might be strengthened by God's Spirit in their innermost being. See, there's two ways of handling pressure. Have you discovered this? One is illustrated by the bathysphere, a miniature submarine, you know, that's used to explore the ocean in places so deep that the water pressure would crush, uh, crush a conventional submarine like, a, like an aluminum can. <laughs> bathyspheres compensate with um, uh, plates of steel several inches thick 
which keeps the water out, but also makes that bathysphere very heavy and hard to maneuver. And inside, it's very cramped space. So that's one way of handling pressure. A second way is illustrated by those creatures at the bottom of the sea, fish. These uh, fish cope with extreme pressure in an entirely different way. They don't build up thick skins. Instead, what they do is they um, compensate for the outside pressure through equal and opposite pressure inside themselves. And they're able to remain supple and, and free. And that's Paul's prayer. That we might be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that we can stand withstand the outside pressures that come our way. Um, listen, I've been praying this prayer for you and, and, and for me. I mean, when do you and I need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit? I mean, certainly, right? It's, it's times of, of difficulty and suffering. I mean, who would say that they uh, have the strength? Right now, I have the strength to suffer. <laughs> Now, when that moment comes, we need the filling of the Holy Spirit. We need the power, the strength of the Holy Spirit. We also need the strength of the Holy Spirit in times of temptation. Times when we face tough moral choices at work. Or times when we're sharing our faith. That's the first stair step. The second step of this prayer is that we might know and experience God's infinite love. Start with me in the middle of verse 17. Look with me. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That word there um, in verse 18, to comprehend, it, it literally means to take hold of with the mind. It means to grasp with the, with the mind. The idea is to grasp a hold of the infinite love of, of Christ. What's that mean? Well, let me explain it this way. Probably everyone who's ever been married has at one time or another uh, said to themselves or thought to themselves or maybe said to their spouse, Listen, I, I know we are married, uh, but I don't feel married right now. <laughs> um, in fact, I don't doubt that you love me, but right now I don't feel your love for me because uh, you don't express your love for me in a way that uh, consoles and comforts and delights me. <laughs> when Paul says here, I am praying the Spirit will empower your inner being to know the love of Christ. Listen, He's not saying that you will understand, he's not praying that you will understand the concept of God's love, but that you will experience Christ's love. Paul's prayer is that we might have an inner experience through which Christ's love and, and his approval is more real to us than any person. His love is more affecting, that his love would become more significant than the love of your parents or, or, or love of, of your children, that his love be more sweet than any professional achievement or any financial status that you might have. Because when you actually, listen, when you actually experience the love of Christ, all those other things lose their driving force. 
Author Mike Iaconelli wrote this. He said, I travel a lot. I came to San Francisco one night and missed my connection back home. I was angry and upset. I called my son on the phone. I wanted him to encourage me. I said, man, I'm stuck in the airport. It's been a horrible day. I've been traveling way too much. My son said, you know, Dad, if you didn't travel so much, you wouldn't have things like this happen. (laughs) He writes, well, I didn't appreciate that. I was ticked off. I said, let me talk to your son, my two-year-old grandson. Well, I forgot that when you are two, you can't talk, and when you're 60, you can't hear. It's not a good combination. (laughs) He's mumbling on the phone. I'm hoping that this is going to make me feel better. Instead, it makes me feel worse. Finally, I've had it. I hear the phone drop onto the floor. Now I hear the kids playing, and I'm stuck in the airport. I'm having this miserable experience. I'm furious and angry when all of a sudden I hear crystal clear over the phone, I love you, Grandpa. (laughs) He writes, you know what? All my anxiety, everything went out the window. When you actually, think about this, when you actually experience the love of Christ, all of our worries, all those things that keep you up at night, our need for success, all that loses, all of that loses its driving force in our lives. If only we could stop for a minute <laughs> in the midst of our busy days, our worry-filled days, our stress-filled days, if only we could stop a minute and could hear God of the universe whose love surpasses our understanding say to us, I love you. I love you. I love you. And I want you to notice how Christ's love is pictured here. I mean, it's wide, right? And long and high and deep. I mean, it's four-dimensional. What Paul is describing is a love that is too large to be confined by geometrical measurements. I mean, if you're familiar with uh, Buzz Lightyear of Toy Story, um, you would describe Christ's love as uh, to infinity and beyond. (laughs) John Stott has described Christ's love as pictured in the passage this way. He says, it's broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner and high enough to exalt the sinner made into a saint to heaven. It's wide enough. It's long enough. It's high enough and deep enough for all of us here this morning. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have done. I don't care where you have been. You are not outside the reach of Christ's infinite love. Do you know that? Do you know that? I pray that you do. My prayer for each of you is that you will know, not just intellectually, friends, not just intellectually the love of Christ, but that you will experience it, truly experience it in your own innermost soul, the deepest part of who you are. And this brings us to the third step of this prayer staircase. The climax, the penultimate of Paul's prayer. Look with me at verse 19. He says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's prayer is that we will be filled up with the divine fullness of Christ. That we might reach full maturity in Christ. 
that Christ will be made full in us. Think of it. The full divine nature of God, which is, was, was present in Christ, right, is available to us, and we should seek after it. We should desire it. We should seek to have Christ fully formed in us. And it's an ongoing process. It's, it doesn't happen just right, at, right away. We are to be filled and filled and filled and filled and filled and filled some more. So what's this mean? Well, in the New Testament, that phrase, fullness of God, almost always means a pattern of life. A fullness of life. What Paul is saying is that you know you have had more than just an emotional experience if it changes the way that you actually live. If you're gradually being made full of Christ. I mean, you realize, right? There has never been, never in the history of this earth, a person who was full of Christ that's been overly anxious or driven, or, or greedy, or, or insecure. Listen, if you are just as anxious, and just as driven, and just as greedy, just as insecure, just as needy as you were before, <laughs> then you have not had this experience. You've not actually experienced the love of Christ, and it's not affected your mind and your will and your emotions. You have not had this fullness of life because, listen, if you actually experience Christ in your most inner being, then it changes the way you live. It has to. Gradually, yes, but permanently. And that's what Paul is praying for. And that's what I've been praying for you and for me and for my family. See, our greatest need is to more and more have Christ formed in us. I got to tell you, this fall, this next year, you will hear that prayer repeated over and over and over again here from this pulpit. Christ, might you come and might you be formed in us. I got to tell you right up front, (laughs) you're going to be challenged. I'm going to be challenged. How is Christ being formed in you? Not just coming to church. Not just doing the church thing. But how is Christ actually being formed in you? What are you doing to allow the Holy Spirit to settle down and dwell in your inner being? How are you experiencing and and, and, and soaking up the love of Christ? How are you being made full of Christ in your life? I echo the Apostle Paul's words from Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, where he said, My little children... For who I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's my prayer for you. That Christ will be formed in you. Would you pray that for yourself? Would you pray that for each other? Would you pray that for me? (laughs) 
to be honest, I don't know how God is going to accomplish this. I, you know what? I read this prayer. I, I don't think Paul knew how it was all going to happen either. I mean, look at Paul's benediction. Verse 20. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. <laughs> when Paul says we, he's including himself, Right? Even he can't understand, even he can't fully imagine all that God is going to do for us, but he's confident that God's going to do it. I got to tell you, right there, my mind stops at that. (laughs) All that remains is to simply say to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Listen, we have an opportunity this morning to take communion, so I'm going to invite you to prepare for joining together at the Lord's table. And I invite you to take some time to just simply meditate on where yours, in your story you have experienced God's love. Take a moment.